Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Building the Machine, the new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we've brought you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you've seen how the machine was constructed, all the highs and lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we've brought you a new episode focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, it's been a chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We've also discussed what was different about baseball in this era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this is a fun blast from the past. This is episode 12, The Legacy. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to wrap up the Big Red Machine and their legacy in baseball history is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm good. Uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. Hey, Chad, you know something I thought of the other day? Well, I, I was watching him replay the 76 World Series on TV, and then I, I watched the uh, 78 78- Tom Seaver no-hit game. You know, one thing different from today than how fans were in, in that era was how they dressed when they went to the game. You know, now everybody in the ballpark's got something red on when you go to a Reds game. But back then, almost nobody did. You, you ever notice that? I haven't noticed that as I've gone back and watched some of those older games. But I know, you know the one thing I noticed is way back, you know, everyone's wearing their hats and, and ties and things like that. Yeah, but, I, I just I wonder, and I don't remember when things started changing, when people started dressing to go to the game, you know what I mean? To, to be in the spirit of the, the team, more like a cheerleader than a fan. It's certainly the way it is now, and you, you can't uh, look anywhere in a ballpark these days without seeing some red. So, interesting. Yeah, things have, things have changed in more ways than one. The way I wanted to start this uh, podcast, this final episode of the series, is by discussing what happened in the immediate aftermath of the years that we've sort of delineated as the Big Red Machine era, 1969 to 1979. Now, we will discuss later, when did the Big Red Machine actually end? Because there's some debate over that topic. But 1980, 1981, if you want to really sort of get expansive in your definition, you wouldn't be too far off to try to include the 1980, 1981 Reds in the Big Red Machine era. You know, the Reds were 89 and 73 in 1980, which is a good record, not only good enough for third in the National League West, but the following year, the Reds were 66-42, and 42, had the best record in baseball. Didn't make the playoffs because of that split season that we could talk about. So, you know, the Reds were pretty good in 1881 as well, Bill. Yeah, kind of went crashing down after that, though. Now, Bill, with this wrap-up, I guess we can talk about how the team was dismantled by Dick Wagner, but let's talk first of all about what we actually saw in, in the big red machine area that we've listed. And we went through to look, and... I'm astounded, maybe you are as well, about the number of Reds Hall of Famers that, of all the people in the Reds Hall of Fame, how many of them played during this 11-year period, essentially, 1969 to 1979? Yeah, we, you know, I mean, everybody knows about the grade eight and, and how many Hall of Famers played on the big red machine, but what we're talking about here is the Reds Hall of Fame. And part of it is, is, the, is the fact that this is when the Hall of Fame had been created. Was, I believe it was created in the 50s. So it was, you know, not too far into the process, and it's it was successful, and fans were involved, and uh, so I think that has something to do with the, this huge number that we're talking about. 
but also it is the quality of the players and, and staff and everything else that, that was part of the ball club at that time. Yeah, it really shows you how talented, and not just the you know the 75-76 teams, the grade eight, as you mentioned, but all the talent that flowed through this organization for this period from 1969 to 1979. It's really, it really blows me away. There are 90 members in the Reds Hall of Fame, and 27 of those members were associated with the Reds from 1969 to 1979. And they go from, uh, I think Tommy Helms was the first of that group to be inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame. But Tommy Helms, Clay Carroll, Wayne Granger, you know, these are names that were integral in the early parts of the of the Big Red Machine. But, I, you know, I don't know that you would consider them the stars, uh, the, the, one, the names that first came to mind. Obviously, you've got uh, Gary Nolan, Jack Billingham, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan. But then you move on down to uh, guys like Dave Bristol, the manager of the 69 Reds that we discussed uh, on the first episode. And uh, Ted Klazuski, who was a hitting coach, was associated with just a lot of players that that weren't actually part of the, the championship teams that uh, got some love, I guess, from the voters. Yeah, and, and guys that, that, that I don't think many people would probably, if you asked them, you know, if they weren't, you know, diehard big Reds fans and, and not, you know, super knowledgeable – how many would know that Tommy Helms and, and Clay Carroll and Wayne Granger and Dan Dreesen uh, are are Reds Hall of Famers? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Clay Carroll and Wayne Granger were integral parts of, of the Big Red Machine bullpen and, and the way Sparky ran the team. No question about it, yeah. So, and all these very well-deserving members as well. Now, Bill, let's talk a little bit about why the Big Red Machine kind of kind of petered out. We had talked about some of the trades and, and Bob Housem handing the reins over to Dick Wagner and Dick Wagner trading some guys away and things like that. But you've identified one or two like really kind of key reasons why this thing had to kind of go down at some point. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah. I, I, and I, and I just thought of another one, uh, the age of the stars, you know, the, the grade eight were getting older um, and aging. And then free agency also was a part of that is, is Rose left. You know, they traded Perez Rose left via free agency uh, Morgan left after 79. Um, and, and, and as these guys aged, we we had been brought up to believe that, the, you know, wasn't any big deal. We got plenty of talent in the in the farm system. You know, we we're going to have replacements brought along. And we talked about in, in one of the last episodes that the guys that, that we thought were going to be the replacements, who are going to be the next great players, Geronimo, uh, Griffey, Ray Knight they didn't end up being as good as we we'd been led to believe they were going to be. And we had run all along through the whole span of this, this podcast talking about the red scouting and their minor league system. And while that was true for the late sixties and the early seventies, when we got into the early, you know, the, the late early seventies or the mid seventies and into the late seventies, we weren't getting a whole lot of good quality out of our out of our draft. Uh, I, I think it was eight years in a row. We are, our number one didn't make it to the to the big leagues. I mean, you can't be successful and 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 have that kind of drafting and, and talent development. Again, that's something we've discussed in uh, many of these episodes. But it's so stark when you start getting to the early '80s how the scouting for Cincinnati, really from the mid '60s, you know, the Rose Perez, Johnny Bench, uh, those years through the early seventies really sustained things for a long time. And then uh, a, an extended period of failures by the scouting department and the development staff really led to the Reds being not, not my favorite Reds teams, 82 
and 83. Yeah, the well just went dry. It really did. As we were discussing how to wrap up the Big Red Machine, and, and there's a lot of different things we want to talk about to kind of give you some context on the Big Red Machine, and it made a lot of sense to, to both of us to start with opening day because we're beginning this uh, wrap-up episode here, and opening day, obviously, there's nothing more Cincinnati than opening day. Bill, what can you tell us about Red's opening days? After Christmas in Cincinnati, the next holiday is opening day. If you're not from here, I don't think you can really get the gist of it. Uh, you know, parents taking kids out of school and, and it being at least quasi accepted. I can remember when they used to, you know, I can remember times where they let us watch opening day on television in class. I've been to a few when you're, when you're young and you don't mind the mobs, there's no better, better day than opening day. No matter what the weather, now if you're getting good weather is always better than bad weather because I've been down there in the snow and I've been down there when it was 80 degrees. The 80 degrees is better, but there's no feeling that matches opening day in Cincinnati. I don't think the Reds on opening day in the this period we're talking about again 1969 to 1979 though it wasn't really a harbinger of what they were for the whole decade because uh, they were only six and five on opening days, but it kind of mirrors what we saw with uh, the way they won in the postseason in some ways because they lost four of their first five uh, opening days. In this. They, they lost in 69, one in 70. They won Sparky's first game. They won Sparky's first game and uh, then lost the next uh, three um, opening days after that, but then won five opening days in a row from 74 through 78, which are, are you know five of the, of the best Reds teams in history, certainly. What else can you tell us about opening day, Bill? Attendance is, I think attendance is always interesting on opening day. In 69 and 70, while they were still at Crosley, they averaged 30,118. At Riverfront from 71 to 79, we kind of, they averaged 50,582. And that number is really a little lower than expected, maybe because in 72, the season started late and opening day was on a Saturday, which you'd think would have brought a bigger crowd, but it only drew, they only drew 37,895 for an opening day on a Saturday. The other thing interesting is is that the uh, opponents, they, they played the Dodgers three times on opening day, the Braves twice, the Giants twice, the Astros twice, Expos once, and the Padres once. Of course, they would have to play the Dodgers more on opening day than anyone else, as much as the Dodgers have been a thorn in the big red machine side throughout this uh, period. Yeah, but you would think that they would save those for big attendance. You know, you don't need a, a big draw on opening day. You could, you could have played Little Sisters of the Poor on opening day and you'd have sold out. That's true. <laughs> now, four different pitchers started more than one opening day in uh, during this period, and I think no one would be surprised by those names. I'll let you tell us, Bill. But the two other two, some people may be a, a little surprised at the other two opening day starters. Tell us about the starting pitchers on these opening days. Well, Gary Nolan uh, started for uh, opening day three times, 69, 71, and 76. Billingham, Jack Billingham started in 72 and 74. Gullet alternated in with Billingham in 73 and 75. And Tom Seaver started in 78 and 79. The other two you're talking about are Jim Merritt in 1970, which turned out to be a pretty good idea because he won 20 that year. And the other was Woody Fryman was the opening day starter in 77, which was probably them trying to put the uh, Tony Perez trade on the back burner or, or showcase Woody Fryman for trading for Tony Perez. One of those two things. I mentioned Jim Merritt being a surprise uh, only because most Reds fans 
really aren't that familiar with Jim Merritt, but you're right. He was fantastic. If you go back to our second episode of this series, we talked a lot about Jim Merritt. Really great season for that first Sparky Anderson team. Now, the Reds on opening day, obviously, uh, opening day, you get the team's ace a lot, and the Reds faced a lot of good pitchers. 1969, they faced uh, Don Drysdale for the Dodgers, a Hall of Famer. That was his final season. 71, another Hall of Famer, Phil Necro. In 72 and 75, they faced another Hall of Famer, Don Sutton. In uh, 76 and 78, J.R. Richard, who had Hall of Fame-level talent, right? Yeah, before he had the stroke, he was amazing. And then in 77, they faced Randy Jones, who was just coming off a Cy Young season. And, of course, they faced our uh, our biggest what-if, really, maybe from this series, Vada Blue, who should have been a red. Yes, he should have. Anything that caught your eye while you were looking at uh, some of these opening day games, Bill? Yeah, I was I was going through the box scores on opening day. The one thing I noticed was how that Pete Rose played really well on opening day. For for the the, the years that he was with the Reds from sixty nine to seventy eight, on opening day he went seventeen for forty. He had four twenty five on opening day, scored seven runs, drove in four. On top of that, he had six walks. He doubled five times, had two triples, and hit a home run. Only two games in, in that span was he held hitless which was 71 and 77 and in 78 he only got one hit so the rest of those games he had big days the the other thing that that was uh kind of surprising to me is that tom siever was pretty daggone ineffective in his two opening day starts he got through four and two-thirds gave up 12 hits 12 runs nine of them were earned walked one gave up got three strikeouts and gave up three home runs those are probably opening days that tom probably would like to forget (laughs) <laughs> for two, what ended up being two pretty good seasons for yeah. Tom Seaver. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, one thing that Bill pointed out to me, and he's, he's absolutely right, that kind of strikes me about the Big Red Machine, and, and probably it's an element for of uh, when you look at why the Big Red Machine was so great and so consistently good, at least, during this period of time, and that's the uh, the coaching staff, the manager and coaching staff. Obviously, for most of that period, Sparky Anderson was the manager. He was 35 when he was hired by the Reds and 43 when he was fired. And uh, that seems impossibly young for a major league manager. And people do always talk about his youth, but I don't know. Uh, he always seemed like he was, uh, you know, 55, 60, 65 years old in every picture, seems like to me, Bill. Yeah, when he was hired at 35 in 1970, he did not look like a 35-year-old man. And, and the other thing that's kind of surprising when you think about this is is they, everybody always talks about how young he was when he was when he was hired, but Dave Bristol, his predecessor, was thirty three when the Reds when 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 the Reds hired him, and he was thirty six when they let him go. Thirty three years old, managing um, and doing a pretty good job managing a major league baseball team. Dave Bristol, Reds Hall of Famer. Now Sparky had nine years in Cincinnati, won eight hundred and sixty three games. That's the all time leader in wins for the Reds. Bill McKechnie is uh, second. Uh, but with 119 fewer wins than Sparky. Sparky had a 596 winning percentage, won three division titles, two National League pennants, and two world championships. Best record in the National League in 1970, best in baseball in 73, 75, and 76. And again, something that, that Bill pointed out to me, how did he never win a Manager of the Year award with the Reds? I don't I don't know who won it in 70. I'm we could probably, I know we could look it up and I didn't think to do it, but how did he not win it in 1970? A rookie manager that leads that leads his league, his team leads their league and, and wins. How is that not a manager of the year? I don't know. Too young. 
He's a young whippersnapper. They didn't want to give him an award. He had plenty of years to ahead of him to win an award. He and then he went twice in Detroit. He did win twice uh, in Detroit. And, and uh, he won a World Series in Detroit as well, right? Yep, and became the first manager to win a World Series in both leagues. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if he had stuck around? Because the Reds were still pretty good in the few years after he left. I mean, they still had some talent. They were still you know, battling for the playoffs. Does, does Sparky make a difference in, in that those teams, or is it just impossible to say? It's impossible to say. I, I think I don't think it would have mattered who you, your manager was in those early '80 teams. There just was no talent. The, you know, the, the, as we said earlier, the well was dry. You could have had a combination of John McGraw, Sparky Anderson, Walter Alston, and whoever else you want to throw in the mix, and they couldn't have won with those teams. The point that you made to me, and I, I sort of teased it a moment ago, was about the co- coaching staff, and it's really kind of amazing to me how the coaching staff changed so little during this time. Why don't you run through the coaching staffs that we had, uh, Bill, and kind of illustrate what you were talking about. Well, I mean, we'll start out with Dave Bristol's coaching staff. His pitching coach was Harvey Haddix, and he had Vern Benson, Jimmy Bragan, and Hal Smith on his staff. And then when Sparky came aboard, his pitching coach was Larry Shepard. His hitting coach was Big Clue, Ted Klazuski. His bench coach and first base coach was George Sugar, And Alex Grammis was the third base coach. And this was from 70 to 75, or through 76. Or no, through 75, I'm sorry. And after after the 75 World Series, Alex Grammis went to Milwaukee as a manager. And it's amazing to me that, that they had six years where they had no changes on their coaching staff. That just simply wouldn't happen today. I mean, they, if you win one year, you know, they're looking to suck a, a coaching staff dry. After uh, Grammis left, Anderson put on uh, – Russ Nixon and Ron Plaza. And as Chad and I both realized when we were talking about this off air, that this is a Ron Plaza was also another guy in ball four and everything comes back to ball four. And then in uh, 1979, John McNamara's staff, he had Bill Fisher, who I think was the pitching coach, Harry Dunlop, Russ Nixon, and, and Ron Plaza had stayed on from Sparky's staff. Yeah. That, that run from 70 to 75, when, and really even 76, because there was a couple changes, but still, so much of the, the staff remained completely intact. And I don't know if it's out of respect for Sparky that they wanted to stay with him, or they just wanted opportunities. But I can't believe that someone wasn't trying to poach some of these uh, coaches, seeing the yeah. success that, uh, that Sparky had. Yeah, like you said, basically Anderson's staff stayed intact from 70 through 78. Other than Grammis leaving, and then he added Nixon and Plaza in 76. So he just really added guys other than losing grandmas yeah. and that that's just a, that would just be unheard of today okay now we're going to try to do a little bit of an overview of the decade and we say decade it's really 11 years 1969 to 1979 but the big red machine era for that uh, period of time the reds drew almost 22 and a half million fans at home and that's including playing a, a season and a half in the smaller crosley field over the course of the 11 years they averaged a little over two million per year at home. High water mark was uh, 1976. Not surprising. 2.63 million. The low was in '69. They were just under a million, 988 thousand. Again, that was at Crosley Field. And in '78, they became the first major league team to draw greater than two and a half million fans three straight years. Talk to us about some of these uh, the average per game. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in '69 at Crosley, they averaged. 
a little over 12,000 a game. And that was about 41% of the capacity at Crosley Field, which was like 29.6. From 71 to 79, and, and I didn't count the half year at Riverfront, uh, they averaged almost 27,000 a game, which was 51% of the capacity at Riverfront, which was about almost 53,000. And comparing this to a little later, in, in 1980, they drew a little over 2 million. They were fifth in the league. They were, they were still drawing almost 25,000 a game. 81, now this was only 54 games. They drew a little over a million, but they were, still they were averaging over 20,000. But by 82, they were eighth in the league. They drew 1.3 million. They were only drawing 16.3 per game, and then it really bottomed out in 83. Yeah, the the Sparky effect and the success that the Reds had early in Sparky's tenure really had an immediate effect on the bottom line. In 1969, the Reds were eighth in the National League in attendance. 1970, they were second. Uh, 71, they dropped back down to seventh. Uh, obviously, that was a down year. And uh, I think there were a lot of new ballparks. Up, the, the bigger ballparks, I think, opened up that year too. I think I think uh, Pittsburgh opened. I think Philadelphia opened a new ballpark, and and maybe St. Louis. I'm not sure. But that would have that might have led to to them dropping, you know, in in, in the ranking in the in the National League. Well, it would make sense because for the next uh, few years, seventy two to seventy nine, they never were worse than third in the National League. Uh, top attendance in nineteen seventy six and second five times in the eleven year period. And when you think of the metropolitan area that they're drawing from, I mean, they're not New York or L A or Chicago. It's pretty amazing. One thing we wanted to discuss was the Reds' record versus their expected record during this period of time. And let me just give you a little bit brief preview. We've talked a little bit about the Pythagorean expectation. It's a, it's a formula I'll try to describe now, and then I'll let Bill run through how the Reds perform versus how they would have been expected to perform. The Pythagorean expectation, and I'm going to try to keep this really simple. It's one of these sports analytics formulas, a Bill James formula. It makes people's eyeballs roll back in their head. It does uh, sometimes, and that's why I'm going to try to uh, keep this as short. But I, I thought it would be important to clarify what we're talking about here. Essentially, it's a, it's a formula that estimates the percentage of games a baseball team should have won. And it's based on the number of runs they scored and runs they allowed. You know, if you compare the team's actual record and their Pythagorean expectation, is is a decent way to evaluate when teams are overperforming, when they're underperforming based on uh, their talent. And it has been shown to correlate fairly well with how baseball teams actually perform and so it's a you know it's a it's a tool it's something fun to look at and, and bill how, can you tell us how the reds did in comparison to what they would have expected to do given the, the number of runs scored and allowed sure the, the reds actual record from 69 through 79 uh, was one uh 1042 and 730 they were they had a winning percentage of 588 the pythagorean had them is uh, they should have been a thousand and one thousand and twelve and seven sixty with a five seventy one winning percentage, and there were only two seasons where the Reds were below their Pythagorean ex expectation seventy one, which was their own, as everybody as we all know was their only season below five hundred, and surprisingly nineteen seventy six they were below it and they won one hundred and two games. That's pretty amazing. Now they were only one game off. That, that's an average of, of 95 wins and 66 losses over that over that period of time. Their best years over the Pythagorean were 1970 when they were 11 over, which was Sparky's first year. And as we talked about a little while ago, he didn't win manager of the year. And in 1978, they were nine over, which was Sparky's last year. And, and some say 
maybe his best managing job. And the reason we wanted to discuss how the Reds did versus their expectations was to show that they were well above the, what they would have been expected to win. And uh, not just overall for the for the 11 years, but also in almost all the individual years. And the way you just framed it with Sparky's first year and his last year being the best years, that's kind of, you know, there are lots of different reasons why the Reds would have outperformed what they would have been expected to perform. But, man, you just kind of got to give Sparky a big chunk of that credit, don't you? Him and the coaching staff. Now, you know, the talent has a lot to do with it. You can't win with, you know, you can't win a horse race with a mule. But the the fact that, that they were able to, to draw out and, and coalesce this group of, of egos and talent into what it became is, is a, a sure a credit to the coaching staff, uh, Sparky, and the front office. Let's talk about some trends, some splits for the uh, 11-year period. During that time, the Reds had a 626 winning percentage. At home, they were 551 on the road, which is pretty good, but a 626 winning percentage at Crosley slash Riverfront. Yeah, that helps with attendance. If, if you if you got a pretty good chance that they're going to win when you go down there, you're more apt to go. No question. In 1975, Bill, this is just insane. The Reds went 64 and 17 at home. That's a 790 winning percentage in 1975. Those non-math majors, that's winning almost eight out of every ten at home. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> In 1970, the Reds had a 703 win percentage at home, 57 and 24. That's a little maybe a little bit more surprising, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a little bit amazing when you think that the, the 70 team changed the ballparks right in the middle of the season, and they went from the friendly confines of Crosley Field, a little you know short fence and, and natural turf and all that, to, to this bigger ballpark at, at Riverfront, and so they had to change their game a little bit. And and it may have been one of the reasons they struggled a little bit in the second half, but they did they had to change their style when they changed ballparks. On the road, the Reds were five fifty one for the decade, as I said. The best uh, individual seasons were nineteen seventy two. Obviously, we remember that memorable season. The Reds went fifty three and twenty five, six seventy nine winning percentage, and seventy six, the second World Championship team, six fifty four winning percentage, fifty three and twenty eight. In 77, obviously the Reds finished in second place, 10 games behind the Dodgers. And really the a big part of the reason for that uh, is that the Reds actually were below water on the road, 40 and 41 that season. And it makes it awfully difficult to win when you're performing uh, below 500 on the road. The, the Reds, you know, we've talked all through this series that the Reds are generally pretty much of a better second half team than the first half team. Not to say that they weren't pretty good in the first half. Through the through the this decade, and we're just going to call it a decade, y'all. Get over it if you, if you can't. There's <laughs> being a decade. The first half, they the percentage was they had a 580 winning percentage. Their second half was 598. Their best first half seasons were 1970 when they were 705, and 1975 when they were 678. Their best second half was 1973 when they went 667, and 75 when they went 653. Their worst first half was '71 when they went 446, and they had the you know the 500, the below 500 season. And the first half of 1979 when they did come back and win the division, and they had a 511 winning percentage in '79 in the first half. Their worst second half was in 1970 uh, when it was five. They were still playing 541 ball, but you know how much of that had to do with the pitching staff got so beat up in the second half in 1970, and they changed ballparks. One thing that struck me as after looking at these numbers is that 
six times during this uh, decade, the Reds had a winning percentage greater than 600 in the second half of a season, uh, including five in a row, 1972 to 1976. And uh, sort of a hallmark of Sparky's teams in most of these seasons are really finishing strong uh, as they get into the playoffs, even if they didn't finish particularly strong in the playoffs some of those years, right? Yeah, and they played better in warm weather. One-run games, the Reds were 316-249. That's often a stat that's looked at when uh, determining uh, good teams. 1974, when they lost the division to the Dodgers by four games, that might have been the difference. They went 22-27 and in those one-run games. The only season they were below 500 in one-run games. In 1978, that was Sparky's last year, they went 33-19 and in one-run games. And when you talk about Sparky's possibly best managing job, the fact they went 33 and 19 one run games is a big reason why they only lost the division by two and a half games and really were in the mix for most of the season. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, it was interesting to look at how the Reds did against other teams, you know, individually in terms of winning percentage. Uh, they were above 500 against every single team in the league during that span, weren't they? Yeah, they were, and. and, and... It's it's interesting, you know. They they beat up on some teams. They beat up on the Mets and the Braves and the Phillies pretty well, but the the teams they struggled with, I thought was it was interesting. I remember growing up that the Reds always struggled with the Cubs, and I and I'm not real sure why. From '69 to '72, the Cubs were pretty good, but then they went from bad to average for the rest of the decade. And the Reds only played 508 ball against the Cubs for the decade. And in in fact, in in seven, the best year for the Reds was '76. They went 11 and one versus the Cubs. But in six of those 11 years, the Cubs actually won the season series. And that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah, considering, the, as you said, the, the Cubs really weren't anything special. Now, obviously, we've discussed the constant struggle during this span with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the Dodgers had the third most success of anyone in the league against the Reds in that era. But the Reds still won at a 552 clips, they won basically 55% of their games against the Dodgers against a really good team. I mean, if you, if you look at it this way, the Dodgers winning percentage during this the same span was 561. So they won 56% of their games essentially, but against the Reds, they only won 45% of their games. So that's kind of a, it shows there's a struggle and it was closer than almost anyone else to 500, but still the Reds did pretty well. And, and you know, the Dodgers were Great. <laughs> if it weren't for the big red machine, again, this is something we've talked about. But man, the great—they really had a great uh, decade plus, didn't they? Yeah, they did. The divisions had been set up differently. Who knows? You know what kind of playoff? You know, league championship playoff series we might have seen those years. But the Dodgers—they won over a hundred games once, and they won over ninety games four times in the decade. They only had one losing season, just like the Reds. Theirs, the Dodgers, was in '79. And I want to go back to 74 again when the Reds would lose the division by four games. That was the year the Reds went 6-12 and 12 against the Dodgers, and that was the difference. Yeah, easy to, easy to see the difference in retrospect, certainly. Now, the Reds winning percentage uh, versus the Giants, maybe a little surprising. You want to talk about that, Bill? Yeah, the Giants weren't real good for, for most of the decade. They were okay. Their winning percentage for the decade was 498, was below 500. And, but they had six seasons that were under 500. And they only won 90 games twice. But the Reds only had a 559 winning percentage against the Giants, the, the fourth worst of any team in the league. The four teams that had the most success against the Reds were two of them are obvious. Though you can tell why they did that. They were it was such a struggle. That's Los Angeles and Pittsburgh, who were, were pretty much great for the entire decade. 
But the Giants and the Cubs are kind of outliers a little bit. Both were uh, either okay or you know somewhat less than okay during that time. You wonder with the Giants if it was the West Coast thing too, because even the big red machine struggled on the West Coast at times. And and Candlestick was a tough place to play. Yeah, absolutely could be, could have been the case. Now, here seems like a good time to start talking about some of the individuals that played for the Big Red Machine. And I guess the first name that comes out is going to be uh, our guy, Joe Morgan. And, Bill, why don't you t- tell us about Joe Morgan, who he was, what he meant to the Big Red Machine. Well, and, and as you said, I think any discussion about individual players of the Big Red Machine has to start with their best player. And at that point, in the Big Red Machine era, Joe Morgan was their best player. He'd come up to the big leagues in 1963 at the age of 19, but it was 65 before he was really a regular. And he had a great, a really good rookie year, finished second in the rookie year balloting. He hit 271 with a 331 on base and a 481 uh, slugging, OPS plus of 131. And he had 14 home runs that year. And he was playing his home games in the Astrodome, not an easy place to hit the ball out of the ballpark. By the time he came to the Reds before the 72 season, He'd, had, he'd made two all-star teams, and, and he was having a pretty solid major league career, but his career seemed like it might even be declining a bit. His numbers were better from 65 to 67 than they were from 69 to 72. I, I think he must have been injured in 68 because he only got like 27 plate appearances. But he, he came to Cincinnati, as, as we all know, after or before 72, and, and his numbers rocketed off the charts and, and took him right into the Hall of Fame. In, in the years that he was in Cincinnati – he had a, a career average of 288, 415, 470. His OPS plus with the Reds was 147. He averaged 28 doubles, three triples, and 19 home runs a year. He led the league in runs in 72 and walks in 72 and 75, and on base percentage in 72, 74, 75, and 76, slugging in 76, OPS and OPS plus in 75 and 76. He hit over 20 home runs four times. He stole 49 or more bases in his first six years in Cincinnati, and he did that with an 83% success rate. And I want, I want to make a little comparison here to some other guys, noted base stealers. Everybody talks about, if you want to go back, talk about Mari Wills. Mari Wills stole, at a, his success rate was 74%. Lou Brock, 75%. Ricky Henderson, 81%. Vince Coleman, 81%. None of these guys were better than, than Morgan's success rate. And Morgan didn't steal all the – Morgan only stole bases when he needed it. Eric Davis was a little better later for the Reds, the 85%. Uh, Tim Raines was 85%. Davey Lopes for the Dodgers was the same as Morgan. He was 83%. And those are pretty amazing percentages. But getting back to Morgan, in his years with Cincinnati, he was an all-star eight years. He won five gold gloves. He won the two MVPs. And he was in the top ten for the MVP three other times. And just personally, he's, he's quite simply the best player I ever got to, wa- got to watch every day. He affected the game in so many ways with his offense, with getting on base and hitting for average and power and his speed and his base running, the effect that had on opposing pitchers, and his gold glove defense. The other thing that, that I think is amazing is Joe Morgan had the highest wins above replacement of all players in the 1970s. And in his career, he had 800 more walks than strikeouts. That's pretty freaking amazing. And we're going to talk uh, in just a moment about who was the MVP for the Reds and who was the best uh, pitcher for the Reds during the Big Red Machine era. And uh, you start off strong with with Joe Morgan. As I was looking at the numbers, 
I actually was a little surprised that, uh, I shouldn't have been, I guess, Johnny Bench was as close to Morgan as he really was. I mean, everybody knows Johnny Bench, the greatest catcher of all time. Uh, but uh, he really was consistently great throughout the uh, throughout the period. Rookie of the Year, 1968, won two MVP awards, 1970, 1972, and, and made the top 10 three other times. He won 10 consecutive Gold Glove awards, which is just uh, it's just crazy. He made uh, 14 All-Star games, 13 of those consecutively. And uh, during this 11-year span we're talking about, Bench made the All-Star team every single one of those years. So his career wins above replacement, 75.2%. Uh, the Jaws system, the Jay Jaffe's Hall of Fame uh, projection system, and we, that we talked about a couple of episodes ago when we were discussing Dave Concepcion, has him as the best catcher ever, Gary Carter second. And one thing that Bill has noted a few times here is that uh, the, after his age 24 season, Johnny Bench had that surgery where they had to crack his breastplate, and, uh, and he was never the same he always said. He was still awfully darn good after that. Before the surgery, ages 20 to 24, 274 average, 338 on base, 495 slugging. It's a 133 OPS plus. He averaged 21 homers a season, 28 doubles. Post-surgery, he was a little bit worse in terms of he was a 133 OPS plus, dropped to a 124 OPS plus, ages 25 to 35. But still, his other numbers are pretty close. So it's, it's maybe not as big a difference as we had thought it was. Wonder, you wonder whether the difference might have been in defense. I think it's funny when we talk about he dropped off and he was only 24% above average in baseball. One thing that uh, that you wanted to look at, because you had this uh, sort of memory that Bench was just really great against the really great pitchers of the era. We got a chance to look those, some of those up, and uh, it was true, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. First, we want to thank Joel Luck for helping us pull up these numbers. Um, the three guys that... that bench just wore out uh our three hall of fame guys phil necro who he hit an ops plus of 847 against with 11 home runs don sutton ops plus against of 900 with 12 home runs and steve carlton who we talked about a number of times about bench tearing up he had an ops plus of 1.065 against carlton with 12 home runs so some other guys that he hit pretty well were Joe Necro, Randy Jones, John Candelaria, and he hit Vita Blue pretty well. But to flip that over, guys that he really struggled with were some good guys, some good pitchers too. Gaylord Perry, he had a 593 OPS plus. Tom Seaver, he had a 604 OPS plus. Larry Durker from the Astros, 509. J.R. Richards from the Astros, 577. And in 31 plate appearances against Nolan Ryan, Johnny Bench's OPS Plus was 334. Not OPS Plus, his OPS, I'm sorry. As we said, and I knew, I remembered the Carlton one as the one that really got us start down, on, down on this tangent. And, and I'm glad to see that my memory was correct and that he did wear Carlton out just as much as I thought he did. And that's an accomplishment. Steve Carlton, one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. Let's look at the MVP of the decade for the Reds and the best pitcher for the Reds. And as we, as we kind of looked into this discussion, we decided to set a three-year minimum for this. We've already talked about Morgan and Bench. I guess there's a, they're, they're the two primary competitors, but I want to talk about who else is, is out there. But briefly about Morgan and Bench, uh, Morgan's best year in terms of wins above replacement, 11 wins above replacement in 1975. That's crazy. He averaged 7.2 wins above replacement for that uh, span. Johnny Bench, 
8.6 wins above replacement was his highest. That was his 72 season in which he won uh, the Most Valuable Player Award. I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, Johnny Bench, nine gold gloves during that era. Joe Morgan, five gold gloves. I don't know. They're both <laughs> awfully good. Talk to us about the other competitors for MVP. Really, in my mind, there's only one, maybe two players that you could kind of squeeze into the conversation. And Pete, right. Rose, Pete Rose is one of those, right? Right, absolutely. You, you have to consider Pete. His, his best wins above replacement was 8.3 in 1973. His average was 7.1 over the span. All 11 years during the span, he did. He had made 10 all-star teams, 17 in his career, two gold gloves. Both of them were in the outfield. He won the MVP in 73. He had three top fives, one top ten and finished in the top five, 15 of the MVP voting in nine of his 11 years. He had a three seven, an average 317, 393, 437 slash line. His OPS plus was 131. He averaged nine home runs, 60 RBIs, and 206 hits, and 108 runs scored during the era. That's pretty amazing, and, and it's even more amazing when you consider he's probably the third most valuable player on the team during that span. <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, they had four different players win most valuable player awards during that span. And yeah, I mean, for most teams, that's going to be your best player. Really a great run. And he's, he's probably, you know, maybe not a distant third, but third in this uh, discussion. The one guy that we've talked about many times as being kind of the heart and soul of the big red machine, according to the guys that were actually in the clubhouse, is Tony Perez. And I guess I wasn't surprised, but it was when you compare Perez's numbers during this time to bench to Morgan to Rose they really kind of pale in comparison don't they well he's fairly close to Rose but not as not close to bench or Morgan yeah I mean he had his best uh, wins above replacement year was 72 7.2 in 1970 um, but he only averaged four point they only that's pretty good still averaged 4.2 4. wins above replacement for that decade but um, you know, he played eight of these 11 years for the Reds he made five all-star teams but he didn't want to go glove he was only an MVP uh, in the top five MVP voting one time. 1970, and then he had one other top 10 MVP. Uh, Perez, the slash line for the for, his, for the decade was 286, 355, 495, but he averaged 27 home runs and 104 RBIs. That's nothing to, to sneeze at. It's not. It's an outstanding decade. But when you look at how he was regarded around the league, certainly, with only one time being in the top five of the MVP vote and one other time being in the top ten. just That's that's why I kind of think it pales a little bit in comparison to uh, even Rhodes, who won two gold gloves and was uh, won an MVP and was constantly – he was top 15 in nine of the 11 years in MVP voting. So George Foster, you can make a case for him if you look only at the years when he was a starter. I mean, he was a red for nine of these 11 seasons, but really just a starter for only five of them. And uh, talk to us a little bit about what he did as a starter, because it's really, really pretty incredible. Well, his his top uh, wins above replacement season was seventy seven when he won the when he won the MVP was at eight point four, and his worst of the of the years he was starter was seventy five when it was four point eight. <laughs> That's not a bad worst. It's great. As you said, he was he was red for nine of these seasons, but he was only a starter for five. And of those five, he was an all-star four times. He won the MVP in 77. He had another top uh, 
top two in 76. He was second. He had a top, another top 10 in 78, and he was 12th in 79. His slash line for those years that he was a starter was 302, 369, 560 with a 153 OPS plus. And for those five, those five years that he was a starter, he averaged 35 home runs and 113 RBIs for the Reds. I mean, that's comparable with, with Bench's numbers. Yeah, I think, well, it's, I mean, if you look at all the, the, the total package just for those years as a starter, I think he's right up there with Bench and Morgan. The problem is it was, he's only a starter for five seasons. So when you're looking at most valuable, a little difficult to compare that to some who had extended success for longer than that. But man, George Foster from 1975 to 79, and that, those are Hall of Fame numbers. Yeah, he was a stud. He really was. Uh, no one else is really in the conversation, Bill. I guess there's uh, two or three others that we can maybe discuss. You want to kind of talk about them briefly, and then we'll we'll make our decision. Well, Gr- Griffey, you know, averaged uh, 3.4 wins above replacement, and he had a, a seven years during this span. He made the All Star team twice. He had one top ten MVP. Uh, his OPS plus was 125. Concepcion's uh, wins above replacement was 3.0. Geronimo's was 1.6. These are averages for for that span. Geronimo's best season was 3.7. Concepcion's best season was 3.4. Griffey's was 4.0. They just, you know, they they were great, part of the grade eight, but they were the hubcaps. (laughs) They were kind of the the hubcaps. Very good players, you know, very good players, but not quite up there with the rest of them. Now, Bill, I, I take it from your comments here that you are going to pick Joe Morgan as your MVP of the big red machine. Yeah. I, I, I he just did so many things well that affected the game in so many ways that, that and, and, and as I've said this, you've heard me say this a million times, he's the best player I ever got to, I ever got to watch every day. You know, I'm going to have to give it to, to Joe Morgan as well. I think, uh, you know, what he did was just, it's astounding. I, it's really, that's the only word I can use for it how good he was in that tiny little package and how he was good at everything. And uh, I don't want to discount, though, that Johnny Bench was, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you do better than what Johnny Bench did. And so I think it's maybe one and one A with those two. And then, uh, you know, Pete Rose at number three with a uh, pretty good case as well. So, well, Pete Rose or George Foster, I think uh, three, four. Man, that's, that's amazing to have. Four guys, then you throw in Perez, for example. Golly. How'd they only win two World Series? (laughs) That's a question. That's a question that we may be able to explore when we have a little hypothetical that we're going to finish with today. Let's go through the pitchers quickly. Uh, We are going to talk about the pitching on an overall level in just a moment because I think it's important to understand some of the dynamics of the Big Red Machine pitching and some of the misunderstandings surrounding the pitching staff. But really, you know, when we're talking about starters, there's probably five starters who are in the conversation for the best of the big red machine era. Tom Seaver's one of those, you know, uh, his best wins of a replacement season was five and a half, but he averaged four and a half during the time. And, you know, you look at his years for the Reds first, that first half season with the Reds, he was 14 and three with a 2.34 ERA. That's 1977. Won 16 games each of the next two years uh, was really, really good. In 1979, actually, he was a finished fourth in Cy Young voting, led the league in shutouts. And so during that span, Tom Seaver was great. Do does that question of whether he's the MVP though, Bill? Does it get wrapped up into the question of when the Big Red Machine actually ended? Because his success came after the big years. 
Yeah, you 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 brought this up when we were talking off off air about this, and, and I hadn't even thought of it that to that point. I don't. When I think of the Big Red Machine, I do not think of Tom Seaver, and part of that is the fact that he when he came to the Reds and the the peak was over. Uh, and part of it, I think, it, it, personally for me, was by the time he came to the Reds, I was in the Navy and I wasn't home, so I was seeing everything, but you know, via newspaper and media. So I think that's part of the it, the struggle that I have with with seeing Tom Seaver as part of the Big Red Machine era in my brain. Although, at the time, you know, you're in 1977, still back to back defending champs, mm-hmm. still a good team, and so I can, you know. He really was part of the Big Red Machine, I think. But, yeah, I can see why it's easy to discount him in in retrospect, certainly. And for you personally at the time, just based on where you were in the world. The other guys who were in the conversation, I guess, Gary Nolan. He had a pretty good run, didn't he? Yes, he did. His his best year was a 4.7 wins above replacement in 1970. He averaged... His best, his, he averaged two and a half. His be, best three years was average of 3.6. In like seven and a half years with the Reds, he had he made the all-star team once. He was in a top five Cy Young once, top six once. He averaged 12 wins and eight losses with a 3.11 ERA and a 116 ERA plus. That's not the kind of numbers you think about when, when people talk about how, you know, that the big red machine pitching wasn't real good. Yeah, you look at his 1972 season. When he was 24 years old, 15 and 5, 1.99 ERA, only finished fifth in the Cy Young voting, but just an incredible, incredible season in which he made the All Star team. So Gary Nolan, I think, is in the conversation. Don Gullett also in the conversation. His uh, as I look back at Don Gullett's numbers, often great, but they don't look as good. Kind of uh, when you look at it in an overarching uh, span. As I would have thought, you know, 3.1 wins by replacement was his high watermark. Um, he was seven years with the Reds, didn't make an all-star team, was in the Cy Young voting one-time top five, one-time top ten. He averaged 13-6 and six, uh, record, 3.03 ERA, and 114 ERA plus. Of course, Gullet, uh, you know, you look at uh, 1971 when he was 16-6, 2.65 ERA, and that's probably the high watermark uh, for him in terms of how he was as a Red. But then 73 won 18 games, 74, 17 games. So there's a, there's a good uh, argument to be made that he was the ace on more big Red Machine teams, don't you think? Yeah, uh, but as much as we talk about Gary Nolan having trouble staying healthy, Don Gullett had the same, had the same issue. I mean, had just as many injury problems as Gary Nolan did. The other two guys, I'll let you discuss them that I think can probably be in the conversation, Freddie Norman and Jack Billingham. Yeah, and they're both more, in terms of steady, you know, guys you can count on, grinder, you know, call them grinders. Uh, Freddie Norman, his best season was uh, 77. We had a 3.4 wins above replacement. Seven years, he didn't make any all-star games. Finished sixth in the Cy Young his first year with the Reds. He averaged uh, a record of 12-9 and nine with a 3.43 ERA. And a 1.6 or 106 ERA plus. Jack Billingham, another grinder. His best season was 73 when his wins above replacement was 3.1. I had six years with the Reds. Uh, one All Star game, one top five Cy Young, one top 10. Averaged a record of 15 and 11, ERA of 3.85. His ERA plus, though, was only 91. 
He won 19 games in 73 and 74, and he led the league in starts, shutouts in 73. And Billingham's probably best known for how, how great he was in the playoffs in the World Series. And you don't want to discount that because he really was great. Quickly, let's run through the relievers. Clay Carroll, Raleigh Eastwick, Pedro Bourbon. Really, uh, I guess you could add uh, Will McEnany and uh, Wayne Granger into the conversation, but those are really the names that you would consider to be uh, the best relievers. Clay Carroll was uh, led all Reds relievers in wins above replacement for the decade, 9.6. He led all Reds relievers in saves, 102. He was second in appearances and uh, second in ERA, 2.81 ERA for the decade. Yeah, you and I were talking uh, again off air and, and – I said I asked you how many how many pitchers you'd have to guess, how many guesses you'd go through if you had to figure out which Reds pitcher was named to the All Star game more than once, because there was only one, and we both agreed that we would have had a, a, a fair number of choices before we got to Clay Carroll, and he was the only Reds pitcher of the of the era that made more than one All Star game. Competing with uh, Carroll, and I agree that was a, I, I did not see that one coming. I didn't expect, although I knew how great. Clay Carroll had been. Pedro Bourbon is really the only uh, other pitcher that's kind of in the mix, I think. I guess you could say Raleigh Eastwick as well. But Bourbon led the all Reds relievers in appearances, inning pitch. He was second in wins by replacement, second in saves. Um, and you'd probably put Eastwick in that mix with uh, Carroll and Bourbon, right? Well, the only problem with Eastwick is he, he wasn't here very long. He, you know, he didn't have nearly the career in Cincinnati that Carroll and Bourbon did. He was fourth in appearances among Reds relievers during the decade. Third in wins by replacement. Fourth in saves. First in ERA, 2.4 ERA. Will McEnany had the uh, really good 1975 season. Uh, Wayne Granger was kind of early big red machine, but he did, was third in saves for the for the decade. Third in appearances in ERA. So, but let's talk about uh, MVP and her, or most valuable pitcher. How about that? Who do you give it to? I would probably give it to Gary Nolan. Just because the formative years of the Big Red Machine, uh, the battling back from injuries to be so successful, before the Big Red Machine, he was a thrower. He turned into a pitcher. He would be my pick. Yeah. I, again, this is some of the bias against the post-championship Cincinnati Reds teams for Tom Seaver. A really good argument that Tom Seaver was the best pitcher the Reds had during this time. But I think the, the, the most valuable pitcher for the Big Red Machine, I agree, was Gary Nolan. Clay Carroll, I think, uh, clearly as a reliever, Bill. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you could probably make the argument that Clay Carroll was or Bourbon was really their most valuable pitcher overall because of the way Sparky handled the bullpen and the pitching staff. Now, All Star teams during that era. Obviously, we've talked all series long about the number of Reds that made all-star teams and man there was a bunch we said johnny bench obviously made all 11 all-star teams during that time pete rose made nine joe morgan made eight davy concepcion six all-star teams tony perez five all-star teams george foster four king griffey two and lee may two 47 total all-star appearances for the reds and in a day and age most of our lives these days the last 10 15 20 years you know you're lucky to get one cincinnati red on an all-star team shows you how well respected they were around the league Tell us about the pitchers, Bill. You already kind of previewed that. Yeah, I kind of previewed that. There, there's, there was one pitcher that made two, and that was Clay Carroll. He made the, the all-star team in 71 and 72. Jim Merritt made it in 70. Wayne Simpson made it in 70. Gary Nolan made it in 72. Billingham in 73. 
Seaver in 78, and Mike Lacoste made the All-Star team in 79. They had a total of eight pitchers make the All-Star team in the decade. Now, we're wrapping up the Big Red Machine, and one element of the Big Red Machine that forever everyone's talked about is the grade eight. But how dominant was the Big Red Machine offense exactly? We all remember it as being dominant, but was it? Uh, the answer to your question is they were very dominant. And, and we're going to give you some, we're going to run some numbers by you here. And, and most of these comparisons, we're going to compare the Reds versus the league average. And that'll give you some context of, of where they were compared to the teams they were playing. For example, in runs per game, the Reds averaged uh, 4.69 runs per game for the, for the decade. And that league average in that point was 4.13. So they were 14% higher than league average. Their best year was 76 when they were 33% over league average. And uh, they were 26% over in 75 and 21% over league average in 1970. The only year they were below league average was 1971, and they were 7% below league average when they averaged 3.62 runs a game. So consistently just really uh, dominant in terms of run scored, which is the, uh, the, the that's what you're trying to do in baseball. You can't win if you don't score. It's so true. It's so true. Reds finished uh, first in the league in home runs three times, second two times, third two times, uh, and were never worse than fifth in the league in uh, in home runs. Stolen bases, they were first four times, uh, third a couple of other years. On base percentage, the team's on base percentage for that uh, span was 337, which is 4% higher than league average. They were first five times and second four times in on base percentage. Thank you, Joe Morgan and company. Slugging percentage, they were 8% over league average for the decade. Best season was 1976, the championship team, when they were 17% over league average. Even though their slugging percentages in a couple other years were higher, they were only about 10 above league average those years, but in 76, 17%. OPS, Bill? Well, it's no big surprise they finished high in OPS every year in the decade other than the year they finished below 571. For the 11 years, their totals were 6% above league average. Their best year, was, again, was 76, when they were 15% above league, above league average in OPS. And their next best was 1970, when they were 10% above league average. So to summarize the Big Red Machine offense, it's what drove the machine. There's no question about it. And I think the fact that they were so good has led to this belief that the Reds' pitching was bad. Now, now the, the Reds' pitching was not dominant like the offense was. But as we look in, into the pitching now... It's kind of a fallacy that they were a bad staff, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, you, if you wanted to say they were average or just a bit above average, that would be fair. They had some good pitchers. They had some bad pitchers. But overall, their staff for the for the era was pretty much league average or a little bit better. Their runs allowed per game, the league average was 4.13 for the decade. The Reds allowed 4.01. So they were about 3% better than league average. Uh, the only seasons they were above league average was 69, 77, and 78. And those were also the only years they weren't in the top half of the league in, in runs allowed per game. Their best season, 75, when they were 12% below league average. And their worst was 69, when they were 16% above league average. So 69, when they were still building the machine, not great. But after that, pretty consistently better than average in terms of allowing runs per game. So that's not bad. League average ERA during the time was 3.64. The Reds was 3.6. Only, only three years during the span did the Reds have a worse team ERA than the, than the league average. 
76, 77, 78, and 76 was close. But they were 7% better than league average in uh, 72, 73, and 75. ERA plus, which is a context that takes into account ballpark effects and, and league effects to kind of normalize an ERA. For the 11-year span, it was 100, which is exactly pretty much average. The league average was 101, so it, really we're talking the Reds were an average pitching staff and slightly above average in most seasons. Probably a good way to, to put that. Complete games versus saves, Bill. That's an interesting way to look at uh, the pitching staff because the Reds were a little bit different than a lot of teams in that area. You want to talk about that? Yeah, and it also shows how, how teams, how, how the strategy of baseball changed and, and kind of the Reds and Sparky kind of drove this. In 1970, most teams had more complete games than saves, but by 77, this had swapped. They were, they were getting more saves than complete games. But the Reds had made that swap all the way back in 1965. In the big red machine era, only in 1973 and in 77 were they above league average in complete games, and then they weren't much above. In 73, they had two more complete games. In 77, six more complete games in league average. In 69, the team league leader in complete games had 71 complete games, and the league average for complete games was 44. The Reds had 23 complete games. But by 1975, the league leader in complete games had 55, and the average had dropped all the way to 30, and the Reds had 27. Going, talking about saves, in 69, the team leader in saves had 44, and the league average was 30. The Reds had 44. By 1975, or I'm sorry, by 1979, the team leader in saves had risen to 52, with the league average being 35, and the Reds had 40. So other than 77, the Reds ranked no worse than third in any season in team saves. And in 77, they were four below the league average. In most years, they were double digits above the league average. So the Reds were getting a lot more saves than anybody in baseball. And, and part of it had to do with the way Sparky handled the bullpen. Yeah, maybe the Reds didn't have the most talented pitching staff in the league. But it's clear that uh, they weren't bad in terms of their results. And there's really no evidence that they were below average. They were an average to above average pitching staff throughout that time and and maybe a little bit better than most observers want to give them credit for in retrospect. Let's talk about some, just quickly here, some special individual performances by some of the pitchers during the 70s. And I know one of your favorites, you've talked about it a, a few times, is Wayne Simpson, how dominant Wayne Simpson was in uh, 1970. In the first half of 70, uh, he started 20 games. He was 13-1. and one with a 2.69 ERA with nine complete games at the, at the, around the All-Star break when his shoulder went out. And you just have to wonder what, what this kid could have been if, if with today's medical technology or if the Reds had taken better care of his arm. No question about it. Gary Nolan and, and Don Gullett, speaking of taking care of your arm, we already talked about when talking about MVP or most valuable pitcher for that period, but when they were healthy, Gary Nolan and Don Gold were awfully good. Gary Nolan from his 1970 to 76, when he was on the field, his ERA was 3.05, which is far below the league average of 3.43. Don Gullett, if you look just at seasons when he got 30 starts, just was incredible. 66, 2.65 ERA, nearly a full run lower than the league average. Uh, 73, 18 and 8, 3.51, far below the league average. 17, 11 to 74, ERA 3.04, far below the league average. So... But none of those guys were the only 20-game winner in the Big Red Machine era. That's a good name we mentioned earlier. Mr. Jim Merritt, who went 20-12 and 12 in 1970 with a 4.08 ERA. 
just about .03 above the league average, and he had an ERA plus of 103. Now, Jack Billingham did win 19 twice in 73 and 74. And you remember the Fireman of the Year award, Bill. I don't know if they, they still even give out the Fireman of the Year award. I don't know, but I remember growing up, that was a that was a big award. At least I thought it was at the time, and the Reds had four winners of that, right? Yep, Wayne Granger won it in 1970, Clay Carroll in 72, and Raleigh Eastwick won it in 75 and 76. Now, Bill, it's time to pick the best team of the Big Red Machine. And in order for us to do that, the first thing I think we really need to discuss finally is, let's 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 get your opinion on when the Big Red Machine really ended. We thought the idea for a Building the Machine series would be good to go from 1969 to 1979 because we're kind of showing the start versus the final playoff appearance of this of this bunch. And it was kind of a tidy way to do that. But there are arguments, as we've discussed in different episodes, that it ended different times. Where do you feel like the Big Red Machine really ended? To me, it was uh, 78 after when Pete, when Sparky was fired and, and Pete left, that was the end for me. Yeah. You can make an argument that even that it was when Tony Perez was traded Yep. after 76, I think Sparky and Pete, who really two of the big, big pieces of the big red machine. And then when you include, include that with the fact that Perez was gone as well, it's kind of a different team, a different organizational structure at that time. And it's really difficult to make the case that the, it was really the big red machine after that. So we are obviously going to agree that the two best teams that we're going to be picking among when deciding the best team of the big red machine era, 1975, 1976, right? We agree on that? Yes. So so who's the third best team? I, I, I know who you're going to pick, and I think you're absolutely right. Well, I think you can make the case for for either the seventy. I think you make the case for the seventy three team that lost in the playoffs to the Mets, but my pick would be the the seventy two Reds that lost in seven games to the A's and broke my heart and kept me up all night that Sunday night after the seventh game of the World Series. They they weren't the Grade Eight Reds yet, but they had a recovered Bobby Tolan who recovered from his, his Achilles tendon tear. Uh, their offense was seventeen percent above league average in runs scored. They had a league MVP in bench. Morgan finished fourth, Rose 12th, Carroll 13th. They had three future Hall of Famers, plus Rose and Concepcion. And they did all this with Dennis Mankey playing third base and Davey Concepcion hitting 209. They allowed 7% less than league average in runs, and their team ERA was also 7% less than the league average. And that was the year Gary Nolan went 15-5 and five with a 1.99 ERA, and Clay Carroll had 37 saves. So I, I think this is the team that really ushered in the, the big red machine era. And then I didn't even mention the fact that, that Joe Morgan came over and, and kind of changed the way this team played baseball. Yeah. We talk about when the big red machine really ended awfully good argument that it actually began in mm-hmm. 1972. Absolutely. The years before that were building up to that point, but that was the first real big red machine team. And you're right. They were great. I agree. That's the, that's the team that was the third best. Let's talk about the, 1975 and 1976 team, obviously the two world champion teams. And it's really hard in retrospect. I have my opinion on who it is. We'll see if it's the same as yours, but it's really hard to pick between the two, isn't it? Well, it's kind of like trying to pick between your, between your kids. I would think, you know, who's your favorite kid for me, the, the 76 team was the, 
it was a little bit lacking when I compared these two. Uh, 75 team is, is the one that I would pick as being the best team. The 76 team was better offensively. The grade eight OPS was like 11% higher than the 75 team. Only Bench and Perez had worse years in, in 76. The, the difference between the 75s and 76 teams was the pitching. Uh, the 75 team was 12% better than league average and runs allowed, and the 76 team was only 2% better. The 75 team's ERA plus was 107, 76 team was 100, and the big biggest difference was probably the Gullet and Norman or, or Gullet and Nolan were much better in 75 than they were in 76. But 75 team is the team that I would select as the better of the two. They were both great. They're both fantastic. I think in my mind, again, not having experienced the teams as they happened, I always had it in my mind that that 76 team was the better team. Mostly, I think, because they swept through the playoffs and then swept the Yankees in the World Series. And whereas, you know, the the 75 team had to go the distance against Boston. But I think if you look at it, it's close. It's very close. I think I agree with you. I think 1975 was a slightly better team. I think both teams, though, however, are among the very, very best teams in Major League Baseball history. They're clearly the two best teams in Cincinnati Reds history. Both You put both those up there with anyone, back to the, the Murderer's Row Yankees, in my opinion. Now, we have discussed, on and off throughout this podcast series, some what-if scenarios. And I want to run through a, a few of those uh, here, Bill. And the first one is, what if Bobby Tillon doesn't get hurt in the offseason of 1971? What are, what are the possibilities of what happens if you remember Bobby Tillon got hurt playing basketball you know, during the 1971 offseason? And after being great before that, do the Reds become what they became in some ways, Bill? It's interesting to think about, isn't it? It really is, because you don't know whether, I mean, the, the, the speed and the defense that they had shown in the second half of the 1970 season, or the, the, the direction that Housem seemed to think they were going, really became apparent with the with when Tolan getting hurt and then having absolutely no speed in the 71 season. If he doesn't get hurt and he's still patrolling center field, you wonder whether they make that change in philosophy. And if they don't make that change in philosophy, they probably don't make that trade with Houston. So you don't have Geronimo in center field. You don't have Joe Morgan. And if you don't have Geronimo in center field, maybe you have Foster out there, but maybe Foster never blooms and because it comes to the player that, that he ends up becoming because you don't have Mankey at third. You don't have to root, you don't have to move Rose in to, to take over third base and put Foster out there. There's a whole lot of questions that, that could come out of this, that could change the way this team would have developed. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other ones that we discussed about earlier, which was there was a real possibility before the 1975 season, the Reds were looking for that third baseman, and they had talked, as we discussed during that episode, about trading Tony Perez. And that's another big what if. Sal Bando had been uh, one of the names mentioned, Greg Nettles, George Brett, Hall of Famer. And, but if the Reds do that, if they make that trade, probably you don't see Foster in left field at that point because you're not moving Pete Rose uh, into to play third base, maybe Foster's in center field. So what does that do to Geronimo? You know, Dan Dreesen comes in for for Tony Perez, maybe, and you know, you you lose the leadership with the trade of Perez. If you get a George Brett, you got a Hall of Famer. So who knows? But that's kind of an interesting scenario when you look at those '75 and '76 seasons where Perez was such an integral part of those lineups. Yeah, for, and, and, and what we read, I mean, it doesn't sound like the Bando or Brett talks went very far. The Nettles thing sounded like it went further than anything else. And, and I don't think trading Perez for Nettles would have benefited the Reds in the long term. Having lived through the Big Red Machine and, and getting to experience it, Bill, 
can you tell us what some of your highs and lows were of, of following this team throughout that exciting period? Well, the high is easy. It was the night they won the 75 World Series. Uh, the pressure was finally off. It was like you, after five years, you went, <sighs> the lows for me that were two, as, as, I, as I've said this many times, the 72 World Series, losing that seventh game just absolutely broke my heart. I, I honestly did not sleep that whole Sunday night. I was so upset. And the other one was when they when they lost the uh, the, N- the NLCS in '73 to the Mets, where they got beat by you know a really good pitching staff and the offense just didn't get it done and the was made even worse by the brawl in in the you know the way the New York fans acted in the Shea Stadium. As we begin to wrap up the entire series here, we had a question from a listener that we uh, a few weeks ago we got this, and I've been we've been saving it for this wrap up episode because I think it's a really interesting way to look at the Big Red Machine. This comes from Mike in Muncie, Indiana. Mike wrote us and asked, if you could have a chance to be given a time machine and be given a chance to start at 1969 and move forward year by year to 1979, would you want to replay all those seasons again? Here's the catch, though. You have to give up the 75 and 76 World Series wins and, of course, the division titles also that were won. In other words, you have to erase all that actually happened in order to use the time machine. He wants to know what would uh, we do in regards to the time machine idea? Are we both happy with the way history turned out? After all, many teams in history can never win the big one. So uh, essentially the question is, if you go back to the beginning here and do it over, do you think the Reds could have been, would you take the chance on the Reds being more successful given how close they were in so many seasons? Do you have any thoughts on that, Bill? Yeah, I, I think this is a, uh, Mike, this is a great question. I, and you and I have talked about this a little bit again, off air and, me, if I, if I was, you know, the guardian of the universe and I could do this, I'd absolutely go back to 69 and do it again because I think this team would, would win more than two world championships. Interesting to hear you say that because there's no chance in the world I would. <laughs> because I'm living through a stretch where really I've experienced the Reds win one World Series uh, in my memory. And I'm going to give away two, just hoping to get more. That seems greedy to me, Bill. Well, I, you know, you didn't live through the 72 series and, and how close that was that, it, that they really should have. They only played well in one game in the 72 series. The 73 playoffs, again, it's interesting that they struggled against the left-handed pitching considering how strong they had, you know, how strong right-handed batters they had. And even the 79 playoffs against the Pirates, they, they got swept in three games, but they lost the first two in extra innings. I think it's very easy to say that they could have been more successful. And, 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 and people in Boston will hate this, but if they replayed that World Series, Boston couldn't even stay on the field with the Reds. If they played five times, Boston wouldn't win one. I love it. You may be right. You know, it, it's it's if you're a, a gambling man, it's not a bad bet. Because you look at 1970, 1972, 1973, 1974, 1975, 1976. You know, the Reds are among the favorites to win the World Series each of those years. So could they have won more? Bill, we finally reached the end of building the machine, and it's time to kind of wrap this thing up, uh, put a bow on it. And I know that this team has meant a lot to you personally. Can can you just give me some of your reflections on the Big Red Machine and, and what they've meant to you? 
Yeah, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about this whole series. And first of all, I want to thank some people. I want to thank Greg Rhodes, John Arardi, John Snyder, Chris Garber, and Chad for their great books on the history of the Reds. And we've used all of these books in this series. And if you don't own a copy of the Big 50 or Red Leg Journal or and Big Reg Dynasty, well, shame on you. You need to get out and buy them all right now. But most of all, I want to thank Chad. You have no idea the amount of time he put in engineering and editing these podcasts. He spent way too much time trying to take out all my uhs and ahs and uhs to make this final product sound semi-professional. But moving on to my, my memories of the Reds, and, and I believe your favorite teams are always the ones you grew up with. And I was blessed to have grown up watching the Big Red Machine, and needless to say, those teams are the ones, fair or not, that all other Reds teams will always be compared against. I was very lucky to get to watch four Hall of Fame level players and a ton of really good players play every day growing up. I got to watch Johnny Bench, the greatest catcher in history of the game, at his formative and peak seasons. I watched Joe Morgan come to the Reds as a pretty good player and transform into the best player in the baseball and became one of the greatest second basemen of all time. I got to watch almost the entire career of Pete Rose, who, no matter what you think of him personally, he played the game with a level of intensity that's not been duplicated by many other players. And I still admire that. And I wish everybody played the game that hard. Got to watch Tony Perez, who seemingly came through in every high-pressure opportunity. And he's probably mostly remembered for the big home run against Bill Lee in Game 7 of the 75 series. But the one that I remember was the first the night, night I got my driver's license and he hit one out to win the, the game down at Riverfront when my friends and I drove down that night. And that's not even talking about other players that I got a chance to watch. George Foster, Davey Concepcion, Ken Griffey, Geronimo, Gullet, Billingham, our friend of the podcast, Freddie Norman, Pedro Bourbon, Clay Carroll, Gary Nolan, Jim Maloney, and a whole lot of others. Nothing will ever match the joy I got from watching those teams. They'll always live in my heart. I hope that showed in my remembrances in this series, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as Chad and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Thanks. L- listening to that, Bill, it makes me – I've been a big Reds fan for my entire life, and it makes me jealous, and there's a reason why this team has stood the test of time and why they're still celebrated in Cincinnati. I don't know that we'll ever see anything like it again. Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, the brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Every episode of the show is available for free. If you subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio, you can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Essentially, anywhere you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode and throughout the series came from BaseballReference.com, the book's Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, Ball Four by Jim Bouton and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber and me. A personal thanks here to Bill Lack. This was his idea. This was his baby. He put so much work into making this uh, a special series, and I'm so thankful that he permitted me to tag along with him on this journey through the Big Red Machine. For Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. (laughs) 